You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole. I am just one of your hosts, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited to have back with me Christy Morris as we are going on another tomb raiding adventure. Somebody's poisoned the water hole. (laughs) (laughs) There's a snake in my boot. (laughs) But like literally black acid in the water hole. I know, I know. Uh, Apparently, Pandora cries acid tears. And so uh, just don't drink the water. Uh, You're you're not going to want to drink it. But uh, yeah, we're back. Uh, We're going to be talking about the second Laura Croft Tomb Raider film with Angelina Jolie, The Cradle of Life. Before we dive into everything, thank you so much for listening. It always means a lot to us, the fact that you tune in. Of course, subscribe wherever you are listening to this, and you'll get all the episodes as soon as they drop. In fact, uh, as this episode's coming out, we're going to actually have a couple of Assembling Adventures episodes coming out pretty much back-to-back, so you'll want to check those out as well. You'll find that in the feed. And, of course, you could find us all over social media. We're on what used to be Twitter called... X, I don't even know what that is, but whatever. Uh, you could find us there at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram as well at the 602 Club TFM. We would love uh, to interact with you and have you follow us there. You can find us online at trek.fm or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm with the entire network. We've got a listeners discussion group you can join on Facebook called the Babel Conference. So just go over there and join that by typing Babel into the search field. You'll find us. And you can go to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of the team. Support us and make sure that all of the podcasts that we do can keep coming to you each and every week. So... Christy, um, this is, uh, you know, I, even before we get into uh, the opening of the film and everything, I, I thought it'd be interesting to to maybe talk about um, Angelina Jolie and her diving into this role for a second time. And I, I wondered for you how you felt uh, about how she did in the movie uh, and if you felt like if she felt more comfortable or you felt like her performance had changed at all, gotten better or worse. Uh, how, how did you feel like she did in this second film? I think the any issues that I had with this film were not to do with her performance. I think that definitely by now she is comfortable in the role. I think that she does some really great work with um, her movements and her fighting Um, I particularly love the way that she unexpectedly um, flips over somebody in a fight. Um, I think that she just is really getting good at the action um, and then still finds a way to bring some depth to some scenes that you may not necessarily expect, Um, like the death scene in the end. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was still really impressed with her. And this was only two years later. So I still see it being pretty comfortable for her. But what did you think? 
Yeah, I think that not only is she very comfortable in the role, I think that she feels uh, even more comfortable. I think she's really kind of settled into the character here. I think in some ways it feels like she's having even more fun uh, on the movie as well. Um, There's just a, a few scenes there where she you know, kind of winks at somebody or just kind of gives them a big smile or, or just a, the, there's a lot of joy that I feel like she's having in the movie. Like uh, when they, they land in China for the first time, her friend tells her, you know, that they she's got all her stuff ready and she's, uh, you know, tuned up her bike a little bit and everything. You know, she kind of like just runs off screen towards, uh, you know, her gear and everything. And th- so mm-hmm. I do, I feel like there's a lot of joy that she ends up um, having in the movie and just the through the portrayal and everything. And so, yeah, I think she kind of nails the, the character. Uh, and I think, you know, as we'll talk about maybe later, it's, it's too bad that we didn't get more movies with her as this character, because I think she had just kind of really settled in and um, yeah, it, it's that that's too bad, but mm-hmm. the movie does, you know, really start off with this big opening, a lot like a, Bond movie would and 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 yet unlike those early Bond movies where you kind of have the be- the beginning openings uh, action sequence where it doesn't tie into the rest of the movie you know this ties in to the entire film uh, as there's an earthquake near the Santrini island there in Greece and it uncovers this lost Luna temple that uh, Alexander the Great had hidden his greatest treasures in and and there is where you know Laura finds the orb that kind of sets off this entire sequence of events that's going to come and how did you end up liking this really big opening I mean I, f- I feel like they're going for broke here at the beginning of the film and um you know uh it it kind of uh culminates with Laura punching a shark <laughs> Well, before we get to the shark, um, I'll say I, it's funny, this opening is so memorable for me, even as it was first just panning up from the water toward the wedding reception. I was going, oh, yeah, it was a wedding in Greece, before we even got close enough to know that that's what it was. So clearly, I've seen this movie a few times. (laughs) Um, But it is very reminiscent of a Bond film and of throwing you straight into the action. Um, And then they also find a way to make the title sequence later an interesting part of, you know, having like the rubble pieces come together to form the words. Um, Although it doesn't look great effect wise, it's a video game movie, technically. So you kind of, I think, give it a pass in my in my world. Um, But I think that it's a good open. And I like that, although the story, you know, for sure you know, you could guess probably stretches the truth to make a good story. There are elements of actual history that are part of this story that they weave together. There was actually a temple of Luna, which was the goddess of the moon. Um, But it didn't seem to have anything to do actually with Alexander the Great. Um, And it was completely Mm -hmm. destroyed a long, long, long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of starting like this, um, you know, having her come into on the Wave Runners is really fun. It gives them an opportunity to do some fun stunts and kind of set, again, I think the tempo for the film where, you know, she just seems as a a character to be having a really fun time. 
Uh, and the idea, too, um, of, of finding a temple like this is very Tomb Raider-like. I think the whole sequence feels very much out of the games where she's exploring an underwater temple. Uh, and the, uh, the idea of, you know, there being this orb there that she doesn't quite know what it is yet, but you know is going to be important. And then, of course... Uh, her being attacked by other treasure hunters who play into the rest of the movie and, you know, they're working for the villain. We don't know that yet, but, you know, I think all of this does a great job of kind of setting the stakes for the film, especially since, too, I think, you know, you have the the brutal murders of the two Greek guys that her, are with her that are working on her boat uh, and helping her, you know, get gather the treasure. And so this it lets you know things are really serious really fast. Um, and, you know, I mean, the movie doesn't jump the shark, but it does punch the shark. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit silly, uh, of course, um, but it does also feel like something you might get in a Tomb Raider game. Uh, and then, you know, to have her rescued by uh, the uh, British submarine um, is it, it feels very over the top. But again, it it has that james bond feel to it which you know i i think i i really like this opening sequence um you know i i think it feels also pretty refined action wise and um the I just the production looks great here too at the beginning which is really important like everything about this is kind of i think doing a great job of pulling you in to the film and creating a nice setup for the rest of what we're going to be doing and, and what we're going to be kind of after uh, in this story. Mm -hmm. Well, it, I think that there are a lot of good parts of it. The shark piece does bother me a lot. And, and it's funny, I initially thought when she sliced her arm that it was going to be a scuba diving reference to trying to prevent the bends. Um. Mm -hmm. That somehow if you open up a vein, the nitrogen can escape. I don't know. <laughs> and that she was just going to swim to the top. I forgot about the shark. And now I know why. Because the shark looked bad. And punching a shark and riding yes, it is it highly does. improbable. Mm -hmm. But the yeah. rest of it was awesome. And I mean, like you said, especially when she then gets um, picked up by the British submarine, just rising up from underneath her and then them rescuing her is cool. I mean, that feels very Bond as well. Um, and, you know, like I said, the, the history behind everything, not giving too much information, but feeling plausible enough, I think is such a good addition to that because it's not going super into detail to the point where it can't back out of that later. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, one of the cool things about that is as well, you know, using the earthquake to uncover something like this, um, you know, I thought like you said, I feel like that feels very plausible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that type of stuff happens a lot in archaeology. And so, or at least it does happen in archaeology. So I, I think I, I like where that's all going. Um, I wanted to, to ask you, it turns out that the map leads to Pandora's box. And with with any of these type of films, you know, what you're after kind of sets the stage, you know, I, I especially with something like an Indiana Jones movie. And so how did you feel that 
Pandora's box works then as the kind of MacGuffin that they're chasing throughout this entire movie. That I loved because I think that you need something that's going to have this mysticism around it that's going to be unfamiliar enough to an audience to where you've hooked them now to figure out what's going to happen and if they're going to find it and what it's going to do. Um, and that it's a realistic thing to be an issue in a modern society where biological warfare is a risk. You know, it's um, the thought process has kind of been that that wasn't something that was as possible in the past because people you know, maybe didn't have the knowledge to make that happen or whatever. And now it's more and more likely that someone could get a hold of the wrong virus and set it free and then, you know, kill half the world or more. I mean, heck, look what Mm -hmm. COVID did to all of us. Um, So I think that definitely starting in the 2000s when we were more and more concerned about that as a real risk, this is a great storytelling piece. Um, to have something interesting to go after. I think it's really interesting to have this as a MacGuffin, the thing that we're going to be chasing. I think, like you said, it's it's familiar enough in the, in the zeitgeist of, of humanity to kind of have an understanding of what this thing is. But I think also it allows you, because, you know, nobody knows really what's inside it, they're able to use this to their benefit. And I think that's the thing that I, I really enjoyed uh, about um, how they do use it. And I think it really works. Um, and, you know, it again, it's one of those things where I keep thinking to myself as I was watching this one, I really wish there was more to this franchise with Angelina Jolie because I felt like there were plenty of other things they could have picked up on and used and it would have been great. And so um, Pandora's Box, I think, was a, a perfect way for them to go. Now, one of the things that I did want to ask you about with with this second movie is that there seems to be this feel. We already talked about the James Bond feel, but th- that we get secret agent Tomb Raider because MI6 you know recruits Laura to find the orb uh, before Jonathan, Doctor Jonathan Reese, um, and you know before he can create weapons of mass destruction virally um, and. this movie ends up, I think in many ways feeling like kind of part Tomb Raider movie and then part like spy thriller movie. And I wanted to ask you how you felt like that worked here in this second film. That was something that seemed a little bumpy to me um, because they kind of call it out themselves in the script when Lara says, well, if I have Her Majesty's permission. <laughs> like, she was going to be doing this anyway. She really doesn't care that MI6 wants her to do it. And, you know, she kind of makes it clear that if they send agents to help her, they're just going to be in the way and that she works alone. Um, Or, that on the very least, if she doesn't work alone, she's going to pick her team, in which case she picks Terry Sheridan. Um. So I think that that kind of starts it off in the direction of like, Laura's going to do whatever she wants to do and she's not anybody's spy on staff. Um, And then also that she doesn't follow orders well, so she wouldn't be someone who would be capable of actually being part of MI6 or a similar organization. 
because she would constantly go rogue. So then trying to make it almost like she is a spy doesn't really work. Um, and it feels too much sometimes like trying to make Indiana Jones and Bond fit together as one piece. And it just doesn't quite fit. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking specifically yeah. of the scene where they're suddenly in the cradle of life and have the shadow guardians and the mm-hmm. people being picked off. And it's like you're watching an entirely different movie. Like I thought of Predator. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I, I do think that this is an interesting place where you, because that part doesn't bother me because, it, you know, it it kind of goes with almost like that Indiana Jones vibe, right? You know, where you're messing with mystical powers and all that kind of stuff. But it's not the spy vibe. Right, right. And, and, but it's not the spy vibe, which is a big part of this film. Like the middle of this movie very much feels like a spy film. And, um, you know, where you're going to these locations and a lot of them are, um, based off of, uh, mission work instead of you know tomb raiding work and you know i know from the video games too that there are places where that's a part of the games and but i i, I almost feel like yeah the the movie it seems to be of of two minds i don't know if it congeals the way that they want it to really um right. you know I, I don't know if they found the balance between those yet because that is an important part uh, of the tomb raiding games in in many ways right is is there are parts of of the games that can feel a little bit like a mixture between a james bond movie and an indiana jones movie and i don't i don't know if they quite get that here and and to me um it is one of the things that actually kind of, I think in some ways makes me enjoy the balance they got in the first movie better than this one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not terrible or anything, but I think there are just too many points in this film where we're in a major cityscape and those kind of things where it just, it kind of misses uh, the feel that I, I want, I guess, from a Tomb Raider movie where I, you know, I want to be kind of raiding tombs you know and in in those type of settings more so than i want to be in like you know downtown hong kong right well i mean if you go right back to like every indiana jones movie usually he's out in the environments and that's what continues to give it the feel of it being about historical things and you know things that belong in a museum and um feeling very grounded lived in um you know jungles and tombs and things like that and that's what would make tomb raider what it is and here it's almost like they are trying to add elements which are really cool on their own but don't fit with that world so it is like there are some scenes that i think you could cut and still have a good continuity without so yeah i I agree with you i i think there's yeah i guess maybe too there's probably some ways to to just maybe add those sequences in different areas you know so mm-hmm. we're not spending so much time i guess away from like you said the field mm-hmm. and um you know just yeah um 
I, I wish that would uh, had been the case. And and one of the things, though, I think the movie does pretty well, and it is very interesting because I think that the villain is even more relevant today than um, you know when this movie came out. The idea of somebody who's willing to weaponize viruses and the the absolute danger uh, of this, and you know, as we've seen um, the the ways in which we uh, you know we had an entire pandemic and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I just Watching Syrian Hines play this character who who could care less about what he is going to unleash on the world as long as he's going to make money um, was great in some ways. I mean, you know, even more terrifying than, you know, what you would uh, have thought then because of where we have been in, you know, the last few years. Mm hmm. Well, and. I want to start with too just having um, Kieran as the actor for playing the villain is a huge step in the right direction because everything I've ever seen him in, he has that immediate weight and seriousness um, and overpowering nature about him. Um, I feel like it would make me even more uncomfortable to see him laugh at something because I'm not expecting it out of him. <laughs> He just always seems so serious. Um, I mean, almost even reminding me of like, you know, uh, Count Dooku. Um, he owns a room. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was so good seeing him in this role, especially because it works with giving you that fear that he is going to do something, has no regard for the consequences. Um, and that I love they do have that turning point with Laura where she thinks that he is going to be the one to unleash it and realizes he's just selling it to the highest bidder. He doesn't care. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and just, uh, you know, I think, I think one of the things that with him as a villain, this idea that we can play with these things and that we can control the consequences, right? Like that he thinks that, um, you know, he can open Pandora's box and be able to use what's ever inside to create something he can actually control. Right. You know, I, I think the, the hubris of that is just astounding. And and yet I think of us seeing in our world people playing with viruses and trying to make them more virulent and, you know, um, all of those type of things and having no regard of what could happen if – it gets out or they couldn't find an antidote. I mean, all of these type of things I think is just kind of terrifying. And so, and again, Syrian Hines, I think does a phenomenal job of bringing that to life, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's freaking scary. And then, I mean, props to the actor that plays the Ebola victim on the plane. He sold it too. <laughs> Did that not scare the crap out of you just from that scene? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where all of that, I think, is really working for the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's 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 also a very akin to the idea of, uh, you know, the way you saw Indiana Jones deal with these type of things where the villain is trying to utilize something that they shouldn't be playing with in the first place with powers they don't understand for their own gain 
and you know of course the hero trying to make sure that that doesn't happen and in in that way i think this plays very much like you would expect with an indiana jones film and so of course another part of this movie is that the love interest is different uh because daniel craig did not want to return for this movie he did another movie instead uh and so gerard butler comes in as terry sheridan uh, you know, somebody who, again, has a history with Laura, but him, he's betrayed his country and her previously, making him a pretty, you know, untrustworthy person for her and a liability for her throughout the entire movie. You know, her having to think whether or not he's truly going to be on her side. Uh, and so, yeah, what did you end up thinking of him in this role and, you know, is it one of those things where you, you do kind of wish you could have had Daniel Craig just be back and, you know, continue that relationship? I'm kind of glad Daniel Craig didn't come back because I feel like Gerard Butler really owned this role. And, you know, this was before he had even done 300. This was a little earlier in his career um, it, where he, he's starting to get more big name films. Um and I think that he had a lot more interesting things to do with this character than we saw with Daniel Craig in the last film. Um, and that he was more ruthless. You know, he really um, gives Laura a run for her money in this movie. I like that they have their banter and then, you know, constantly trying to outdo themselves with their bike stunts or fighting. Um, and then the scene on the submarine as well, where she um, handcuffs him so that he can't get away and then leaves him there. And, you know, I think it all really comes to a head when he thinks that he wants to keep Pandora's box and she realizes she was right all along not to trust him. And, you know, I think that they both play a, a, a really do a really great job of playing it up that they are sizing each other up throughout the journey, trying to determine if they can trust each other again, if they want to get back together in a romantic relationship. There's obviously still chemistry there, but she has doubts. And now you realize why. By the end, you know, that he is unfortunately one of the selfish people that is going to use something he doesn't understand for his own ends. He says, I helped you keep this from rice. Now this is my reward. So I, I love that you kind of wonder if he's going to go that way. And then he really takes a turn and then actually almost kills Laura. And she has to take him out first. So. Yeah, I, I loved him in this role. I thought it was a really interesting character and the backstory that they give, but not too much. Um, how did you feel about it? You know, it's really interesting because I do think that having Craig back would have been nice to allow that relationship to go somewhere and deepen. But at the same time, you know, where they take the character of Sheridan you know, you wouldn't want him in this role, right? You, you, because you wouldn't want his character, Alex, to die. Mm -hmm. 
because um, you, you you wouldn't want him to make that decision, especially after what happened in, in the previous film. And so I think, you know, Gerard Butler does a great job in the role, like you said. Um, I think he plays it perfectly. Uh, he's very good at this type of role. And, and I think one of the things that was interesting, and I keep going back to this, you know, Indiana Jones, because the movies are so similar in this way, but he kind of plays the role of the Elsa character in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where at the end, you know, uh, she wants the grail and she won't let it go, mm -hmm. you know, and Indy, you know, can't hold on because she won't let go. And, you know, in some ways, this this movie, uh, you kind of have that issue happening with with him, except, you know, he's he's much more defiant about it, you know, and um, what's, what's interesting too, there was a version of the script where Reese kills him instead of Laura. And I think in the end, I like Laura having to make that decision where she's willing to make sure that nobody opens this box, even though she will be tempted as well to open it um, and to leave it where it is and leave it hidden and nobody will be able to find it again and so I I liked that because there's a lot of, you know, complexity in that where it's like you love somebody, but their choices are continuing them down a path that you can't save them from, mm -hmm. you know, and for her, she even has to make sure that, you know, he's not going in, to endanger the entire world as well. So, you know, I, I thought he's great and I thought it made for a really interesting story. And, you know, in some ways it is too bad that um, you couldn't have Alex back. But again, I just I wouldn't want him to have had that be his story um, mm -hmm. when I really ended up enjoying his character. And, you know, where they end things with the, his character there, it you know, it's not a place that um, it's not a place you would want uh, him to end up. So, well, and. Terry also has one key piece of dialogue there that I'm sure you remember um, when he says, you're not going to choose them over me. It was just like, wow. <laughs> Talk about hubris. Meaning she's not, he doesn't think she's going to choose the whole world's safety over his or the whole world's right. lives over his because she's too in love with him. She just can't let go. And she proves that she can't. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it, it, it works, you know, and I think maybe if there's anything in, in some ways, I think the movie could do better as, you know, we talked about the idea of it, you know, working together with the, the two genres better, uh, and kind of combining them better. You know, I almost feel like it would have been nice maybe to have, a little bit more time with them together and mm -hmm. just even you know, just so, so you could add just a little bit more depth. And I, I mean, maybe one to two minutes, you know, I mean, I'm not asking for a lot. I just think just a little bit more there would have been great. Um, I think even conversation that they have about their relationship and, you know, what kind of happened in, in it all, I, I would have, I guess, in, in some ways, it's just a little bit too ambiguous, too. I just would have liked it to, to be um, uh, a little bit more. But all in all, I, I think they did, you know, a pretty good job. And so, um, 
obviously, you know, one of the things that uh, make these movies interesting uh, are, you know, the locations that we go to. And so, you know, we go to Hong Kong, we go to um, China, even though they don't actually film in China, uh, and uh, Africa as well, of course. And so uh, did you did you feel like they gave us and of course Greece um and so did you feel like we got enough locations to kind of really um build out uh, an enjoyable Tomb Raider movie so we kind of in many ways you know Tomb Raider is a lot like James Bond in that too where you're going to these exotic locations and that's a big part of the films and so uh did did it w- work for you where we ended up going overall yes um but, you know, even though the scene with them wearing the flying squirrel suits was cool for cinematography and um, special, you know, um, stunts, that I think that the city scenes kind of took me out of the rest of the movie. Um, but I love how much they film on location otherwise. You know, the caves with the terracotta soldiers, um, the... um underground temple looking so realistic or sorry not underground underwater um and then you know also in africa i I think that it gives so much to a movie when like we talked about with the last movie you don't have to build as many sets and you're actually filming real places even even if it's not the place you're saying it is on screen if it looks like it could be and it's not fake you know, practical effects and scenery do so much to make a movie feel more real. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that's the, one of the things that, you know, these type of movies did well um, back in this time period because, you know, it was still way too expensive to just try and do things, you know, on a green screen and CGI. Mm-hmm. And it makes these movies, like you said, it just feels more real, even, you know, as dumb as the underwater shark is, right? Because it doesn't look great. You know, she's still in an underwater tank. You know, it's not just some CGI composite thing. And and so, mm. um, even though the shark is CGI, but you that know what I mean. That wasn't a real um, shark. You know, there's... Strangely not. Strangely huh. not. Um, so, but no, I, I agree with you. I think that the, all the locations they go to, and, and I... And like you, I do kind of wish that instead of choosing Hong Kong as a place to go to uh, where we're trying to retrieve the orb from, you know, somewhere else that felt more in line with the kind of action adventureness of Tomb Raider would have been more interesting. So mm-hmm. I, w- I would have liked that. But you mentioned, um, you know, the the big uh, flying squirrel sequence. Of course, we have the opening sequence as well. Uh, we've got the shootout at the cave with the terracotta warriors and uh, all tons of, of, of action scenes. we got motorcycle riding. Some of that looks fake and some of it doesn't. But regardless, I am wondering to what you thought of the action in this movie. The action was great. I think, you know, you can really tell that they put a lot of effort into adding some cool stunts that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like the flying squirrel suits. You know, you expect people if they're going to jump off of something that they have a parachute, but not necessarily that they're going to spread their wings. (laughs) So that was funny. Um, 
and you know adding in things like the jet ski stunt or the you know biking um competition that they're having between each other in the mountains just gives it a little bit more of something to do rather than just suddenly you're here suddenly you're there kind of thing it's uh enjoying the journey sort of addition to the movie um and i mean i wish they had actually spent more time in the mountains or in africa because those areas are places that you know a lot of people have never been and you could easily make that feel so interesting the more you add um so yeah i mean what did you think i thought it was really good for the most part i think that they did a great job on the action i had a lot of fun uh, watching most of the sequences you know even again didn't love, you know, being in downtown Hong Kong kind of thing, but I, I did really enjoy, you know, like you said, the squirrel jump. Um, it was cool, and I thought they did a great job with that, um, and, you know, because it's a real thing. Um, a lot of the action is very realistic, you know, and the fight sequences, um, you know, where they're trying to get the orb uh, in Hong Kong looked good. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed all the action, especially, like I said, at the, the opening of the film, it was great. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I think the action is good in this movie. I think they do a great job with it. And part of that is so much of the, uh, the movie is done practically and that does make a difference, you know, and, uh, so it doesn't have to be ridiculously outlandish. Um, when things are being done practically in in camera and that again just really does make a big difference and so um i did i did want to ask you about the production of the movie because uh this is directed by jen de Bont, i think is how you'd say his name uh he directed speed twister minority report um and He's also worked as a cinematographer. Um, a lot of his work is in cinematography. And so I wanted to kind of ask you first just about that part of the production because he's not the cinematographer on this movie, but I was I found it very strange that so much of the movie, it doesn't look bad, but I feel like so many of the scenes are kind of overlit. And mm. uh, like, especially when they were in the caves with the terracotta warrior and even just standing where there's that uh, cave opening and everything where it's like it doesn't feel naturally lit. It just feels like there's way too much. Uh, there, There's places like that where I didn't love the lighting choices that they made. Um, and it kind of it made it feel less cinematic for the movie um, by not choosing a little bit more dramatic lighting. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Did that hit you at all? Or is that just something that I noticed? So I am glad you brought that up because, you know, there are things sometimes that I don't necessarily pick up on that then if you bring it up, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I did maybe subconsciously pick up on that and didn't think about it openly. But um, for me, it wasn't the fight at the caves with the terracotta soldiers, but rather the scene in the cradle of life itself, you know, although it's supposed to look very surreal and like it's an anti-gravity space and you can never tell what um, tunnel someone is coming into or out of the lighting there did really throw me off. And maybe it was intentionally supposed to do that, but 
it felt like it just wasn't quite the right fit for that scene. Um, and that maybe it should have been more natural looking than like almost mm-hmm. like blue and white. Right. Yeah. It was very yeah, it's... futuristic feeling almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. Did you think it's that? It's a great point. Uh, In that scene, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I can absolutely see what you're saying. And I, I, I think I agree with you on that. Um, and so... I I thought it was interesting too, and and I, I don't maybe this does have something to do with it. Um, but the you know the director did not actually enjoy working on this movie because of all the studio interference that he was getting, and and, and the game makers interference that he was getting. Um, and it's one of those things where there's not a ton of background information that I could find here. I, I, I did some digging to see if I could find any other places uh, where it might be, but there wasn't a lot. And um, it made me wonder exactly what type of interference he was getting. And if the movie would have been better, if he had just been able to do his vision of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and of course, uh, I'm going to correct myself because he didn't direct Minority Report. That was Steven Spielberg. Forgive me. He was a producer on Minority Report. So he was a part of that. But, you know, he didn't actually direct it. So um, but all to say, I, I'm just it's it's fascinating to me him not really enjoying working on this film. And, you know, I wonder if that has to do with you know, maybe not working as much with the cinematographer to create a more cinematic feel for the film because maybe he's just trying to get done with it because he's so frustrated. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great point. It could be just that there were too many cooks in the kitchen, as they say, um, and that, you know, we start, started out in the first movie with a completely different director. And from the get-go, you're trying to deal with game makers and filmmakers trying to come together and agree on a story that makes sense for the character. And that's always hard. And, you know, this we were saying before had been done better than the other ones that came before it that were video game adaptations. But maybe at this point, it was still just too much of a bear and not really having one person driving everything to make sure it was consistent. And that maybe that's why this mm-hmm. director had such yeah. a bad experience and that ultimately we don't get another movie with Angelina Jolie. Yeah. I don't know. That's what it maybe. seems like. Um, it, yeah, you know, it could, could possibly be the case. Uh, and so, and it's interesting too, because in, in general, I think for the most part, this movie, uh, it feels slightly more polished than the first movie. Um, even though they actually spent less on this movie. Um, mm. And so that's really interesting to me as well. So it, it feels like the movie is, is slightly contradictory in some ways to me in that. So um, I wanted to ask you too, because, you know, we talked about the uh, the music in the first movie and this movie has a completely different composer with Alan Silvestri. You know, he has a long history with movies and, and things that he's worked on, uh, big franchises. And, uh, you know, of course, I th- this is interesting because he also gets to use the theme from the video games for the film. And so 
how did you feel like this one worked? I thought this one was really interesting. I I particularly loved the sound effects that they used for like the orb sounds, um, the background music that they used during the fight scene in the lab in the city. Um, there were some choices like that that were very specific and very unique that really added something. Um, and then overall, I think it definitely helps having the actual video game theme represented in the music. Um, and just felt like it was better to listen to um, and felt more consistent um, with what you would want from a blockbuster movie score. You know, you don't want something yeah. that's just suitable. You would like to have something that's beautiful, but also fits well. And I think that that's what we get a lot more here than we did in the first film. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, I think he did a great job with this score. Uh, and especially since the beauty of it is that it it feels like that's more the type of score that you would have wanted in the first movie. And, you know, by using the thematic elements from the video game, is you know, it, which is already established. But then, you know, I think he does a good job, too, of kind of giving... Like, he walks the line with some of those um, more electronic uh, fight sequence mm -hmm. parts of the film with the more symphonics. So I think he does a really good job. And, you know, it almost – it does make me wish, though – I I don't dislike the, the theme um, for Tomb Raider that it was created for the video game, but I almost want more to it. You know, I, I just wish it was more – uh, vibrant mm -hmm. um, and you know just kind of I don't know I, I kind of would have loved to have had more of a march you know as akin to Indiana Jones you know is something in that that vein um, but I think Sylvester does a great job here with what he's got to work with so um, and you know makes the most of it um, before we uh, kind of talk about our ratings um, I'm I'm really interested uh, for you with the idea of there not being a third one. Um, the idea that Angelina Jolie says that she has no desire really to do a third film. Uh, she, feel, she felt like she said she was able to do uh, what she wanted to do uh, and uh, that she didn't really want to come back. And that means the franchise doesn't get, um, you know, touched again until 2018 with the reboot and I because I was watching this movie today and I was thinking I almost wish that she would come back and do one more you know do mm -hmm. a um you know an, an older Laura Croft movie I just think that would just be really interesting because she does this character so well. I really enjoy her performance as this character. And it just, it, I don't know, would, would you want it? Would that be something you would want to see? I would love that because I think that there are some similarities, similarities between Angelina, the person and Lara, the character. And that there is this fire and sly um, sarcasm 
that she brings to that role that's so much fun. Um, even during the serious moments, you know, it's like she's kind of always got a glimmer in her eye. Um, and I it I think it's unfortunate we didn't at least get a trilogy out of these. Um, and like I said, the first one was such a big deal to me to see in the theater and had the poster and everything. Um, she, I think, played a similar character kind of in the way she portrayed Mr. and Mrs. Smith. She has that um, action hero slash spy vibe about her. So, yeah, I would love to get another Lara Croft Tomb Raider movie with her, um, even at this point. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, I'm right there with you. Yeah. I, I, I think it would be great. Well, write her a letter. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm really interested to see then with all that we've talked about with this one. And I feel like, you know, there's been some some good that we've really liked and maybe a, a few things that we haven't loved. But where are you going to end up with your ratings for Laura Croft Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life? So I end up kind of in the middle. I give it a little bit of credit for some cool stunts and for bringing in Gerard Butler um, and really making me love Angelina so much more. But it ultimately just was missing some meat to it to really tie everything together. Um, and so I end up giving it a three out of five orbs because it is fun. I have seen it several times because it's fun, but it's not a great Indiana Jones ish movie because it kind of confuses itself between what it really is. Mm -hmm. But like I said, it's still got some fun stuff going on with it and good casting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, honestly, it is not as good for me as the first movie. And I think I gave the movie first movie 3.5. Um, I think I would give this one 3.25. Like it's it's if there's just a couple of things that are a little bit different, I think I would I would like this movie more. Um, but I, I think like you said, it's just it's not quite there and it just doesn't quite have what that first movie did. There was something um, about that first movie that um, just, yeah, um, was a little bit different and I think worked a little bit better. So but so much fun to get a chance to talk about both of these films. You know, if people wanted to catch up with you. Uh, see what else you have going on these days, you know, where would they find you? Well, of course, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Bespin Bell. Maybe I'll actually go on there and use it again. Um, and on Facebook in the Babel Conference. And if you want to look at something else, I had a finished podcast with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabres and Spells over on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And what about you? Well, uh, you could find me all over the place on social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 Of course, here on the network outside of the 602 Club, you'll find me doing Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of shows. One is Owl Post about Harry Potter, each and every chapter. Uh, you can also find me on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you hear. here.